there's been this sense, I guess, growing in, in certain circles around this distrust that people have with teachers and, you know, if they're pushing some sort of political agenda and having this bill just kind of fuels that narrative. Normally, when we talk about education policy, it's a debate over funding and charter schools. But recently, there's been a big focus on what students are learning, particularly when it comes to race. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. This week on State Street, we're diving into some bills that have emerged from the debate on critical race theory. I don't want critical race theory because I don't want my kids limited into thinking they're victims. Part of loving your child is seeing and loving the color of their skin and accepting their reality. Mommy, can you wash my skin white? Mommy, a girl yanked my hair braid out of my head and left me with a bald spot. Can you fix it? 10% about life is what happens. 90% is how you choose to react. I got to be able to coach up all kids, black, brown, white kids, into that mindset of success. And I feel like critical theory works against it. House resolution on critical race theory in public education, Representative Christiansen. Representative Christiansen. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. So needless to say, this is a super divisive issue, but it's also something that's relatively new. Like, I don't even think I'd heard the term CRT until last year, Sonia. Yeah, I don't think I had either, Emily. So let's define what we're even talking about first. Definitely. Defining CRT when we're talking about it in the context of this debate, I think, can be really tricky because it has become a catch-all term for lots of topics related to race and racism. But it really refers to one way that academics in higher education think about race, which is that laws and policies in the United States uphold discrimination against people who are not white. And Utah teachers and administrators say that CRT isn't even being taught in public schools right now. So we're going to talk with some education reporters about how this debate started in Utah and how we got some pretty controversial proposals at the legislature this year. And those proposals would add some additional hoops for teachers to jump through when they're planning their lessons. Speaking of lesson planning, we're also going to hear from a social studies teacher about what that actually looks like and how these proposals would change things for her. To bring us up to speed on the debate around CRT, I brought in two familiar faces or maybe voices because this is a podcast. We've got <laughs> KUER's own John Reed, education reporter extraordinaire. And we have Courtney Tanner, who's an education reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune. And she's also extraordinaire. Well, Emily, you really nabbed the best and brightest in Utah. <laughs> uh, didn't I? We got really lucky this week. And I asked them to take a little trip down memory lane with me first. I just want to start off real quick. Since you're both education reporters, what was your favorite class in high school and why? <laughs> oh, wow. Was not expecting that. I don't know. I liked it all. Um, I ran our student newspaper and no one contributed. So I like wrote every article and like did the whole layout myself and distributed them myself, too. You were like standing on the corner, like, get your paper, get your yearbook. Like hawking those papers. <laughs> John, what about you? What was your favorite class? I think uh, I'm going to have to go with history. I remember we learned every we had to like memorize every state and capital. 
and like draw it on a map. And I've since forgotten how to do that. But so if I were to quiz you on that right now, you wouldn't be able to do it. I'd fail. I'd fail. All right. Let's get into it. There's been a lot of talk recently about what kids should and shouldn't be learning in schools, like topics related to race and gender and sexuality. And right now, some state lawmakers are sponsoring bills that would give the public more say in the materials teachers can use in their classrooms. So when did this start becoming an issue? To me, the whole um, critical race theory debate really came last year, really bubbled up last year. And it looks like a direct result of kind of the aftermath of the national protests over race. I mean, it seems like a counter argument, essentially, to those. And then you have these conservative groups coming in saying, let's not talk about race in the classroom. It's kind of these two counter arguments. Well, I spoke with uh, Senator Phil Moore, who's sponsoring one of these bills, and he said he was getting lots of emails from parents saying they were seeing assignments come home or overhearing things in online classes. So this kind of got its start during the pandemic, you know, seeing things that they didn't think was appropriate. And from what he said, you know, he doesn't know if that's true or not. Probably a lot of it is based on things people have seen on the Internet or social media. Uh, But he said based on that, he wanted to open this process up, let parents see what materials are being used and, you know, just create this more transparent process. So let's talk about those conservative groups and who is involved in this debate here in Utah. Who are the major players we're seeing in the state? I think the biggest player is uh, the parent group, Utah Parents United. Um, They really have an open floor, honestly, in Utah. There's not a lot of folks that are, are really engaged in education here. There is a union, but it's not as active as in other states. And so this really ultra-conservative parent group, Utah Parents United, has really taken the floor on this, has really taken the charge in protesting books or protesting curriculum. They kind of seemingly came out of nowhere, but they have a a whole lot of political force. And, you know, they really push um, for an agenda that is parents first in a child's education, that, that most of the lessons that a child learns should come from the parent. Are there any examples you've seen that really represent what's at stake in this discussion about curriculum, like any school board meetings or protests? One school board meeting that really illustrated this for me was um, when the Utah State Board of Education was discussing how classrooms, how teachers could talk about race. Um, This was in response to the CRT bill that the legislature passed last session. And what was really interesting is you'd have all these public comments. You'd have one person come up and talk about, you know, that talking about race was this toxic thing that was full of all these ideologies that that we shouldn't do it in Utah. And then you'd have the next person come forward who had kids that were, you know, students of color and that they'd been bullied in school. And one mom talked about how her little girl um, who was black had her braid ripped out by a classmate and came home, you know, with this bloody spot on the back of her head. So it was this really interesting you know, emotional back and forth between these speakers um, wanting race to be talked about or not wanting race to be talked about. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that, um, you know, with all these sorts of political debates that are happening right now, it's really a distraction from, you know, these real needs that are happening in schools and the pandemic and, um, you know, the impacts to students that we've seen. And I think one thing that sort of clarified that for me was I was at a school recently uh, to witness just the, you know, all these staffing issues that we've seen and how schools are just struggling with basic operations right now because so many people are out, there's no one to fill in. 
And the principal was telling me about this student who was really struggling. She wasn't learning. She wasn't advancing like her peers. And they were considering moving her to special education. But then they saw that she had failed her hearing test before the pandemic. And, you know, the pandemic hit and all these things happened. And it just sort of got lost in the shuffle. And so I think it's things like that where, um, you know, finding and helping those students that are really not doing well, they're the ones who kind of get lost throughout all this. And it makes it harder when you have these additional requirements and uh, this kind of noise, I guess, around education that's distracting from these real needs that students have. Let's get back to how the legislature is taking this on this year. Republican Senator Lincoln Fillmore from South Jordan is one person who's been pretty focused on this issue. Last year, he sponsored a resolution to urge the state school board to ban ideas they say are related to critical race theory. And this session, he's sponsoring a bill to involve parents in the process of approving teaching materials. So what's your read on Fillmore's bill? It was really interesting because what it looks like right now is definitely not what it looked like at the beginning. Fillmore, when he introduced this in the interim, it was very much targeted to social studies and what social studies teachers were talking about, especially with race. And that's obviously kind of the chief concern coming after he sponsored the critical race theory bill. Um, Now what it is, is kind of vetting the curriculum that schools use, particularly like textbooks, for instance. So he wants parents to be able to weigh in on textbooks, have those go through a public process where they go through a meeting where parents can come in and talk about what they do or don't like in the material. But there's also another bill by Republican Representative Jordan Tusher. So, John, tell us about this one and how it's different from Fillmore's. This one goes a lot further. Um, So it looks like it requires all materials to kind of go through this vetting process, a similar vetting process that Courtney talked about. And it also requires teachers to post syllabi online. Um, So basically like a college course, it would kind of outline all the materials they're going to be using. And then if there's any sort of changes later, that also has to be notified in advance and again, go through this kind of approval process. John, what do teachers think about this issue? Um, From those that I've spoken to, it really feels like sort of an unnecessary measure. And, you know, the process is pretty transparent already. The state board approved standards. There's a, a really big process for doing that. A lot of people come in to help with that. There's parents, there's teachers, Um, other leaders in education. You know, a lot of schools already do post a lot of the materials they use, especially, you know, after the pandemic and lots of classes have gone online. There's been this sense, I guess, growing in in certain circles around this distrust that people have with teachers. And, you know, if they're pushing some sort of political agenda or, you know, teaching things that parents don't think is appropriate. And having this bill just kind of fuels that narrative What is the current process for approving curricula? Typically, it goes through the Utah State Board of Education, which sets standards that school districts then have to follow. The materials would have to go to the elected members of a local school board to decide, and they would have to hold a public meeting where members of the public could come in and weigh in and get feedback on the materials. The legislature has weighed in on curriculum before, though. I'm thinking about past proposals related to more comprehensive sex education and teaching consent. So how is what's happening now different from that? 
This is really interesting because, yes, the legislature always has kind of given standards for what schools can or cannot say. I mean, you're right. Sex education is kind of top of the list in Utah, which is basically don't say anything. Um, But what's different about this is that typically curriculum is handled by local school districts, by like what they want to use as their textbook. They have that choice you know, following directions from the State Board of Education, of course, on standards, but the school districts always had that choice. This sets up a really formal process that all school districts are going to have to go through from now on in order to approve a book to be used in the classroom. Where do you think this debate about curriculum goes from here? I'll be intrigued to see if um, there's more pushback from teachers. Um, there is a lot of frustration. You know, teachers are feeling like they're being told how to do their job and that they're not doing their job well enough and they're being micromanaged. And so I'm curious to see if teachers become more of like a vocal force against these bills. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting, too, to just see what this debate looks like when they're you know, how it goes through if there's more changes that come to these bills. It seems like this sort of issue about curriculum and transparency isn't going to go away. You know, we'll just have to see if there's more to come. John Reed, KUER education reporter, and Courtney Tanner from the Salt Lake Tribune. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. As for those two bills that provide more oversight on instructional material, Fillmore's bill had a really contentious and long committee hearing last week, and it ended up passing. Then after we recorded the interview with John and Courtney, we learned Representative Jordan Tusher actually won't be pursuing his bill this session, but he does plan to bring it up during the legislature's interim session. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear my conversation with a social studies teacher. She'll walk us through how she plans her lessons and how that might change under these bills. You're listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. So, Emily, obviously, neither of us are teachers. Mm -hmm. And even though a good friend of mine is a teacher and your sister is a teacher, I certainly did not understand what actually goes into planning a lesson before this week. Oh, I definitely don't either, Sonia. So to get a better idea of what goes into lesson planning, which state lawmakers are trying to bring more oversight to, I talked to Lizbeth Padilla. She is a high school teacher in the Granite School District. So what does she teach, Sonia? She She teaches ninth grade geography and 12th grade government, so social studies, which is exactly the kind of stuff this debate has been laser focused on, even though the proposals in the legislature cover all kinds of classes. And just to give you a sense, you can picture Elizabeth in the classroom. She has about 40 students in each class. Oh, my word. That seems like a lot of children to keep track of, Sonia. (laughs) You know, I certainly don't envy her wrangling all those kids, but that is why she's a teacher and I am not. But anyway, I started off by asking her how long she's been teaching and what she likes most about it. So this is my second year teaching. I think what I enjoy most about teaching is just the fact that I get to help kids understand a world that's generally extremely confusing and just sort of prepare them for what the real world holds. 
Can you walk us through a recent lesson that you planned from choosing it to creating the materials to grading the students? The first thing I do in choosing an assessment is to um, address the standard, essentially. For government, I have a standard that says students will use historic and modern case studies to trace the application of public office, civil liberties, civil rights, and responsibilities. What I'll do for a mock election in that manner is I will pick an election, for example, the 2018 election for senator. I will pull up all of the profiles from that set election from the candidates' websites themselves um, and anything directly linked to the candidate. And then choose a profile for them for things that are relevant to students. So things like education. What's the politician's stance on education? What's their stance on the involvement of state to federal government? So we can talk about federalism in that manner. What is the immigration idea that the senator has? Because I come from a location that has a lot of immigrant students, so it's just relevant to them. And then what were the actual materials that you compiled for this class, the the candidate profiles, help us visualize what that looked like for the students. Oh, so it'd be like on a PowerPoint slide, I'd say. It'd be a picture of the candidate, their name, and we'd go through about three slides for the three topics we chose. And then we'll also actually click on their website so they have a chance to go and find that. Um, Sometimes we'll do it as a class. Sometimes they'll do small group work because I have students who work better in small groups. So they'll be given those slides that are just printed out. And they'll answer a set of questions like, what is Mitt Romney's stance on immigration? What is his stance on education? Do you agree with that stance on education? Explain why or why not. The assessment will be to choose a candidate that you would vote for based on accurate evidence. So I don't grade them at all about what candidate they chose. I always just grade on how they used evidence to back up their answer, which is most of social studies, is using credible evidence to back up the opinion that you have. How do you, in that example, choose which policy positions to include as part of that candidate profile? I just like to keep it relevant to the students. A big one right now is limits on technology, maybe even uh, advancements in schools, because that's directly to do with them. One of the things we talked about was how the smoking age was moved from 18 to 21. Like those subjects that kids want to know about. Like, why exactly do I have to be 21 now to go? buy an electronic cigarette? And I'm like, terrible question, but here's why, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I like to I like to make sure that what I'm picking will pique student interest. That's my whole goal, because half the struggle of teaching is keeping their interest. How many lesson plans do you put together in a given year? Just ballpark, ballpark <laughs> a lot, estimate. <laughs> a lot. Um, I teach two different classes. So I would say about two for each week. For each class, so four lesson plans a week, every week. And multiply that by whatever, like 25, maybe, yeah, about 100 lesson plans then, a a school year, I'd say. Can you explain what access parents currently have to materials that are used in the classroom? Canvas is an online learning, like, system. It's a place for me to put essentially everything in an online format. You can assign the parent role of observer And essentially, it's everything. You have access to my entire—you just cannot submit an assignment. You can send me a message. You can look through any documents I upload, any videos that are posted. Every single thing is—it's visible to any observer. How would a requirement to get all your materials for a lesson approved ahead of time impact your ability to plan lessons? It seems unnecessary. It seems like an extra step, just something extra to do because— 
we already do that to a degree. In all of our disclosures we give that parents do sign, um, they get a curriculum map of everything we are learning. In a different manner, it would just be a loss of opportunity to teach students current events because then I'd have to get that current event uh, approved. So lessons would lose sort of their luster. All right, Elizabeth Padilla, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Of course, not a problem. Sonia, I think what we've heard from Lisbeth really resonates with what John and Courtney said other teachers have told them, you know, about micromanaging from the legislature as well as from parents and just adding more work for them, even though they are already overworked and we're seeing teachers quitting left and right. Yeah, I mean, lawmakers are balancing two really strong sets of opinions here, right? You've got parents who have been meeting with them, sending them tons of emails. They're really concerned that critical race theory is seeping into their child's classrooms, even though it's not explicitly part of the curriculum. Yeah, it's really become what some educators call a boogeyman. And it's a dominating hot button issue in politics across the country, not just here in Utah. Yeah, I think that adds even more pressure to the issue, Mm -hmm. you know. And on the other side, you've got teachers telling lawmakers and saying to the media that this is just way too intrusive and they're not actually teaching critical race theory anyway. But still, Sonia, it's the legislature's prerogative to weigh in on these issues. And they've done that before with sex education. Totally. And I think the question really is, how far will they go? The debate around curriculum was a big deal last week, but let's talk about a few other issues that the legislature tackled. Taxes, man. Taxes. (laughs) We mentioned in our last episode that legislative leadership has designated this year as the year of the tax cut. Repeat of last year. I wonder how many more tax cut years we'll get until they get tired of them. Same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Um, And Senate leadership has thrown its weight behind a bill that cuts the income tax rate by 0.1%. The public comment was pretty mixed on it. There were some people saying the state could afford an even bigger cut and others saying the money would be better spent on social services. Regardless, it passed the full Senate. Speaking of deja vu legislation, there was an attempt last year to limit no-knock warrants, and the same thing is happening this year. A bill passed a committee that bans no-knock warrants for investigating misdemeanor charges. And swooping into the Senate is a bill that would make the Golden Eagle Utah's state bird of prey. Now, don't worry, this wouldn't replace the California gull as the state bird. But the bill's sponsor said the Golden Eagle is a bird all Utahns can fly with. I will say, you know, as a Californian, I feel a little insulted that Utah has been using (laughs) our bird as its state bird. So even though normally as journalists, we don't take stances, I got to say, I think this bill needs to go even further and make the Golden Eagle Utah's state bird as well and leave the California goal to California. Wow, Sonia. Is the goal even the state bird of California? (laughs) It actually isn't. It's the quail. That does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. The team includes Caroline Ballard, Elaine Clark, 
Brenton Weiniger, and Jim Hill. State Street is a production of KUER. If you liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. It really helps other listeners find the show. See you next week. Is the gull even the state bird of California? <laughs> it actually isn't. It's the quail. <laughs> oh, that's cute. We have those too, though. Huh? huh. <laughs> I wanted you to to caca. How come you didn't? I don't want to caca, caca Emily. <laughs> you can caca. Caca. <laughs> From KUER.